Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the Hard Way to Enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Boy, we got a jam-packed roster of Thanksgiving weekend release films to talk about. And we'll hear the opinions of Peter Rayner, critic for the Christian Science Monitor, Amy Nicholson, film writer for the New York Times and host of the podcast Unspooled, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with Ridley Scott's Napoleon, starring Joaquin. Phoenix. Uh, David Scarpa is the screenwriter of the film. Peter, what did you think of Napoleon? Well, uh, there have been a lot of Napoleons in the movies, uh, starting with Abel Gantz's great five-hour film uh, from 1927. This is not a great movie, uh, and uh, thankfully it's at least under three hours, which is uh, something of, of an anomaly this, uh, this holiday season. Um I don't quite know what to make of this movie in the sense that it's this big epic. The best parts of it, I think, are the battle sequences, as you might expect. Mm-hmm. Ridley Scott is really good at staging battle scenes, uh, although it's sometimes hard to tell who's who unless you look at the flags or the uniforms. But, uh, but, but they're very well staged. But the bulk of the movie is a kind of domestic drama, a loopy domestic drama, uh, between uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Napoleon and Vanessa Kirby's Josephine, um, and I, I think it's sort of an anti-epic epic or an anti-Napoleon Napoleon movie because Phoenix, you know, he's a wonderful actor, but he seems miscast almost to the point where you feel like that's why he was cast. Uh, you know, he's, he's this very recessive, pinched, uh, uh, you know, he just he doesn't enjoy life at all. Even the battle scenes, you know, you would think that you would show him as a master tactician. He would say something about these battles that he's won, but he kind of says, you know, eh, uh, you know, there really isn't much to him at all in this character, um, except that he's. They don't overdo the fact that he's short, which is thankful, I guess. But the scenes between him and Vanessa Kirby are almost laughable. In fact, you could tell from the audience that they were sort of repressed titters, not so repressed sometimes in the scenes between them. Uh, you know, he, he, he'll, he'll uh, say things like, um, uh, you know, you're, you'd be nothing without me to her. And, you know, say it, you'd be nothing without me. You know, and then a little bit later in the spat, you know, she says, now you tell me you'd be nothing without me. You know, I mean, it's this kind of weird folly a deux. So uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of perversely entertaining on that level, but not much of an epic. Amy, what do you think of Napoleon? Yeah, similar to Peter, I felt like Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix dislike Napoleon too much to even make a movie about Napoleon. Well, he's they, British. I think yeah. that's part of the problem. Yeah. Ridley Scott doesn't like Napoleon. Because, I mean, it's like he sets out to kind of 
answered this question, it feels like. You know, why did this man get upwards of three million people killed? You know, the answer we would kind of guess going in is ego, and that seems to be the answer he kind of comes up with, but you never feel it at all in Joaquin Phoenix's performance. He's, like, glowering and marching, but he has more of a a loser's anti-charisma. Like, you do not imagine why anybody would follow him into battle. You don't really register that at all. And I think that when, you know when Ridley is interested in, in kind of like the waste of life on the battlefield, you do really feel that, especially the horses. I can't be alone and always being like, oh, the horses, they don't even want to be here. Don't shoot the horses. So he establishes that, but that feels kind of like a pretty basic point. Okay, cool. War is bad. We get it. I do always like Vanessa Kirby. So all of their scenes, I'm just going to enjoy watching her act. But even there, you know, what she's saying, like, you would be nothing about without me. And we know that he has Waterloo ahead, but we never feel any of these things fit together besides them just saying so. But his last word was Josephine when he was dying. He adored her. And what made Napoleon so effective as a leader was he was outgoing. He knew the men individually and would stop by and clap somebody on the shoulder and tell them, you know, well fought today. And he awarded medals to common soldiers for the first time, which they seem to have completely lost in this. Uh, just a quick Peter, point. Yeah. That apparently, Ridley Scott has prepared a four-hour version of this film that's going to be shown on Apple, ultimately streaming. Uh, so that may explain some of the ellipses and, and lack in this movie, which is about two and a half hours, I think. Uh, but still, that's that's quite a bit of extra footage. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it sounds like a different film in some ways. Napoleon from director Ridley Scott. David Scarpa wrote the screenplay starring Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby. It's rated R in wide release. The Disney animated feature Wish is directed by Chris Buck and Fawn Vera Senthorn. Uh, Charles, what did you think of Wish? If you put a bunch of executives in a room and told them to put out a list of what elements do you have to have in a Disney feature, this is what you would get. You have a heroine who is princess adjacent. She's not a princess, but she hangs around the royal court for some reason. She is upbeat and positive and a role model. Uh, We're set in a mythical Mediterranean island Uh, ruled by King um, Magnifico, and his shtick is he's collected. When everyone turns 18, they have one wish, and he keeps the wishes and once a year may grant one. And her grandfather, who's turning 100, just like the studio, and she keeps saying, my grandfather, who's turning 100, in case you missed it the first six times, uh, wants his wish granted, and his wish turns out to be to play the... um, mandolin, which has nothing to do with the music in any of the songs, although it does fit into the Mediterranean setting. The backgrounds in the film are gorgeous. You see the influence of Ivan Durrell and a bit of Kai Nielsen and Gustav Tengren from the golden age of Disney, kind of filtered through Mike Giamma's very elegant sensibility. They're Romanesque, Gothic, they're beautiful, but then the characters get in front of them who are not terribly well-designed. They're kind of overly drawn and um, thin in 15th century Renaissance costume. Then to help her with her, her quest to get her grandfather's wish, which isn't really much of an I want when you think of, say, Belle or Mulan or even Ariel, uh, the star comes down that looks like a chubby little Pokemon, and it has all sorts of magic, and it helps her... And after she's defeated the evil king, it leaves her with a magic wand, 
which she doesn't know how to use and has proved she's completely inept with, and she's going to be the fairy godmother watching over the people. And there are references to earlier films, particularly Pinocchio, but they just remind you about how much better those are. Wish, the Disney animated film, Amy. Yeah, the weird thing about this film is it creeps up on you that Disney is celebrating their 100th birthday by basically making this prequel that in the most offhanded, you're slowly gathering all the pieces together way, kind of retcons Disney's entire catalog, going all the way back to his very first animated films into one universe that starts here on this island with Magnifico and this girl. And it's a pretty daffy premise. And, you know... It's likable enough. I don't think I would dislike this movie to the point that I do if it weren't for the songs. The songs are just almost completely abysmal. One of them is one of them is good. There's kind of a percussive nice number that has a rhythm to it. The rest of them are just written absolutely for like Broadway for 10 overlapping voices. And the big song that has the idea in it that I kind of like, which is, you know, this is at its core a movie about a spiritual revolution. You have this one girl with the power of nature, the power of stars, kind of having this humanist idea of what if we do things for ourselves and we don't listen to this guy who is dressed like the Pope and saying he can perform miracles. It's kind of a radical idea in the middle of this film. And that but should be the what song, they sing at the end. Yeah, but in the song they're singing about it, one of the characters, a tiny bunny, has the line, when it comes to the universe, we're all shareholders. And when I got to that line, I just stopped and I was like, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about Wish, the new Disney animated feature. It's rated PG in wide release. Maestro looks at the life of Leonard Bernstein, the great composer and conductor. Uh, the film stars Bradley Cooper, who also directs and co-wrote the screenplay with Josh Singer. Carrie Mulligan plays plays uh, his uh, wife as well. The family was very uh, instrumental in supporting this film, which showed Leonard and Felicia Bernstein. Amy, what did you think of Maestro? It's fascinating how this movie tells the whole arc of Leonard Bernstein's life without telling us that much about the part we're really interested in, which is the music. You know, what inspired his music? What drove his music? What were his theories about what good music should be? You know, this movie instead is kind of underwhelmingly about the most relatable element of him, which is he's a guy who wants everything. He's always straddling two worlds. You know, he wants to be taken seriously as a classical conductor, but he also wants to write contemporary hits. And these are just things the movie keeps like telling us, but not really artistically exploring. And then it really takes this I want everything idea into his romantic lives. He wants to be loved by everybody. He wants to love everybody. He wants to love his wife, Carrie Mulligan, and he wants to love whatever kind of man he has around as like his darling as that moment. And it's interesting in that you're watching a character do something that's very clearly difficult for his wife. You know, he's not a great husband across the board. He's a little lousy, but he's like sincere and genuine about it. And the movie kind of makes you be like, well, it's just Lenny being who Lenny is. But it still just feels kind of declarative and on the nose, not complex. I will say, though, that the style of it is done with a dynamism that I think the story doesn't have. You know, scenes are smashing into each other. The look of the cameras changing over years. The editing is very flashy editing. It's like, hello, look at me. And and Bradley Cooper is also like, hello, look at me. But there's really no poetry in this movie, except for probably one scene where they use on the town to kind of tell the whole story of Leonard and Felicia's courtship in this ballet. And that's the one time it strives to be something more artistic. Maestro's the film we're talking about. Peter? There's so much more to, to Leonard Bernstein, both as an artist and a man, than this movie uh, is. It, it really, I think, you know, it falls into so many of the biopic traps. Agreed, it's very hard to make a movie about 
a great artist, particularly, a, you know, a composer, conductor. I mean, there were, how do you avoid all those aha moments, you know? Um, but, but, you know, if, if you emphasize the person to the, to the detriment of the artist, then it's a disservice. And if you do the reverse, it's also a disservice. But there's so little of him as an artist in this film, except they keep pumping the soundtrack with his greatest hits. You know, his music uh, from On the Town, On the Waterfront, West Side Story, etc., um, but West Side Story, for instance, you, is barely a blip on the screen in terms of the genesis of that show. Um, the relationship between uh, the two of them, which I think is supposed to show that, you know, despite all of the sexual issues and whatnot, that they had this, you know, deep and abiding, soulful bond. Uh, to me, it just it came across like, like sort of a folly, this, this relationship, because it wasn't dealt with emotionally or psychologically really in the movie. Carrie Mulligan, I think, is quite good and is the only performance I really liked in the film. But it's, it's such a haphazard uh, gloss on his life and, and art that, that I think, you know, you'd be much better off, uh, uh, you know, listening to him conduct Mahler or Sibelius or Beethoven or, or, or getting those wonderful DVDs or online of the Young People's Concerts, which I went to as a kid. Oh, that's uh, great. I know, watched it, them on TV. It's the best introduction to classical music I know. And typically that's not really explored in this movie either. His role as a teacher. We're talking about Maestro, starring uh, Bradley Cooper and Carey Mulligan. Bradley Cooper directed and co-wrote it. It's rated R. You can see it at the Egyptian Theater Hollywood, the landmark in Westwood, and it starts streaming on Netflix December 20th. American Symphony, also about music, but this a music documentary about the composer and uh, instrumentalist John Batiste and about his life partner and her dealing with cancer. The film is directed by Matthew Heineman. Peter, what did you think of American Symphony? It's an interesting film. It, it's... Um... Uh, you know, John Baptiste has this sort of public reputation for being this, you know, totally exhilarating, exhilarated guy who's just jumping all over the place and has all this great music and inspires everybody and he's just fun. Um, and he is that in this movie when he's performing. Uh, but during a lot of that, uh, you know, when he won the, all those Grammys and every, he, he was dealing with uh, this terrible situation. Uh, you know, with his with his wife, who who was uh, you know had a recurrence of leukemia, and so the bulk of the film is emotionally about how the two of them sort of manage to, uh, you know, handle you know tremendous success and and tremendous you know sadness uh, in the same pass. And uh, it's very revealing of Baptiste. You know, there's a scene where he's, you know, talking to his phone therapist and he talks about how upset and depressed he is. But then you see him on stage, you know, in that wonderful Grammy performance where he, you know, you don't see much of the build up to how he creates these performances. Or, you know, he's in Carnegie Hall, you know, uh, performing American Symphony, uh, this wonderful piece that he wrote, which is a melange of all these different styles. So it's I think it's a very good examination of, of, of how you deal with with, with the highs and lows as a creative artist. We'll continue and hear what Amy has to say about the documentary Amy American Symphony, uh, and we'll hear what uh, Amy Nicholson has to say. Peter Rayner with us, Charles Solomon as well. We have uh, thriller Leave the World Behind, starring Julia Roberts and Mahershala Ali. Also, The Boy and the Heron, a Japanese animated film, and this, uh, the first in years from Miyazaki. It's all coming up on Film Week. 
Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Roll Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Charles Solomon, Amy Nicholson, and Peter Rayner. Very busy week in film. And if you missed our opening films that we talked about, you can listen to the entirety of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts or at LAS.com. Right now we're talking about American Symphony. It's a documentary on the year 2022 in the life of musician, composer, John Batiste. Uh, he had 11 Grammy nominations that year, including Album of the Year. This focuses not only on his life as a musician, but on what his life partner, uh, Suleika Jawad, was going through with a recurrence of leukemia at the same time. Matthew Heineman, the director of the documentary American Symphony. Amy, what did you think? I think it is fascinating to to have this movie come out in the same way, week as Maestro because there are things that these two musicians have in common. They are incredibly charismatic in front of a crowd and they are both positioned in that world where they're like sort of classical, sort of pop. How can I be taken Highly seriously versatile. in both? Highly versatile. And here you actually even have scenes of Jean-Baptiste sort of saying, they don't know what category to put me in and it's kind of making people lose their minds and I get attacked on all sides. It's an interesting film for Matthew Heineman to do because he's the director who I first saw in Cartel Land, a really brutal doc about the drug wars in Mexico. This is very off base for him, I would say, but he brings his kind of great cinematic style to it. It took me a while to ease into this documentary because in the first half, you can kind of feel that, you know, Jean-Baptiste and Suleika Jaoud, they're very... Uh, cautious in front of the camera you know they this is kind of in, in a way as peter was pointing out a film about performance about like how do you summon an energy when you're feeling really low you can feel them try to summon the power of saying like the brave thing the uplifting thing and it's only after the cameras are there for a long time that you really see the exhaustion come in and jean baptiste start to even have scenes where he's like hiding his face under a pillow while he's talking to his therapist and you become very protective of him and he is in here talking about music about what it means to him the symphony that he's conducting as peter's like uh referenced you know he has this pressure on him where he wants to write a piece of music that he says composes an entire century of like black excellence black artistry into one and how do you do that and the pressure is really building that's fascinating but i think my favorite scene in here is the day after he wins a bunch of grammys he's at the airport in las vegas and you see the moment where this guy who has been you know fairly famous the band leader for colbert suddenly realize he is extra famous, start getting like very recognized at the airport, but also the shoe shine guy does not know who he is and has to take out a newspaper. Watching that moment happen to a person is fascinating. 
It's, it sounds like a fascinating documentary. Peter, a final thought on it. Uh, yeah, there's a, a great uh, thing that, that Batiste says when he's rehearsing for the American Symphony, which I think uh, is, applies to all, all music. It says, he tells the musicians, it's going to sound how it sounds until it sounds how it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> it focuses on John Batiste and his life partner. American Symphony is the film directed by Matthew Heineman. Batiste and uh, Suleika Jawad are featuring prominently. It's rated PG-13. You can see American Symphony at Lemley's Monica Film Center, Santa Monica, starting on Friday, November 24th. And it's streaming on Netflix starting next Wednesday, the 29th. Leave the World Behind, a thriller starring Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, and Ethan Hawke. The film is written and directed by Sam Esmail and based on a 2020 novel by Ruman Alam. Amy, what did you think of Leave the World Behind? I thought it was a pretty playful and taut thriller that is very small, but trying to cram in a bunch of ideas about paranoia and class and misanthropy and the dependence of the of people on the Internet. USM Smile, of course, uh, did Mr. Robot, so he's channeling a lot of his ideas about how does the world really work into here. But really at its core, this movie is about seeing six characters, pretty much all movie stars, interact in this very small setting. Uh, Julian and Ethan are the married couple. She's kind of the bossier one. She's very unhappy. They go to this Airbnb in Long Island with their two kids. The two kids are kind of the weaker characters. They're not really written very strongly at all. And then things start to go wrong. And then while things are going wrong, Mahersha Ali and um, his daughter, uh, Mahela, show up at the door and they ask to be let in. Uh, Plot-wise, I kind of want to stop there and just let things unfold. But what I do think is that this camera almost a little bit to the film's detriment, just loves swirling around and making us feel very uneasy. It's sort of like, what would Hitchcock do if he had access to digital technology? I would do all of these things. Um, you're like, okay, calm down. Um, some lines of the dialogue are a little bit too clunky, but a lot of it is just really, really, really well done, funny, smart. To me, the best parts are when like some of the characters splinter off and you see them interact with each other one-on-one. -on -one. Like The main ones are so well drawn. Like Julia, her character interacting... With Mahersha Ali, fantastic scene. But her scenes with his daughter are even better. They're, they have this really interesting kind of tricky power dynamic that cross-sects with all of these different ideas about like who really should control a room right now. And that's just amazing. It's a really, all of their scenes are fantastic. We're talking about Leave the World Behind, the thriller, Peter. I think wasn't the birds uh, used digital birds in, uh, in the Hitchcock? Uh, <laughs> they better not have been real. Um I, you know, this film, when I first saw it, I thought it was fairly disposable, but it has sort of stayed with me. I do think that it, it suffers from trying to do too many different things. You know, it's one of these apocalyptic movies that, that you know, uh, the Julia Roberts character is, is sort of racist and and they're, they're trying to uh, show that this couple is, is sort of, you know, yuppie bourgeois and they have to make their comeuppance and... And, and there's all sorts of stuff in it that, that doesn't quite pan out, which we can't really get into. But um, I think on, on the whole, I would say it's, it's, it's a cut above the kind of films that Shyamalan has been doing lately, you know, very much in that same ballpark. Seeing the trailer for it, that's what it seemed yeah, reminiscent of I mean, it, it is me. very much like that. And, uh, you know, I think Julia Roberts, I always find her much more appealing when she's not, you know, being so... Dour and 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 stone faced and and you know when when she there's a little more uh, joie de vivre in her character I think that brings her out as an actress more um, 
but but uh, but it is it is very well written. Uh, it's it's just that I think at a certain point it seemed like apocalyptic overload to me. Leave the world behind. Written and directed by Sam Esmail. It's rated R, and you can see it in select theaters. It'll start streaming on Netflix December eighth. The latest uh, film, and it's been a decade-long wait for writer-director Ayao Miyazaki, is The Boy and the Heron, Japanese animated film. Uh, Charles, obviously, the master returns. That's news in and of itself. How's the film? Well, in the proposal that he wrote for this film, Miyazaki said, if someone comes out of retirement trying to prove all his powers are still intact, is he going to just show how much how feeble he's become uh, you bet he will, and it's a bet that he loses and the audience wins, because this is by orders of magnitude the best animated film of the year. It's Miyazaki with all his powers intact. Uh, he's an amazing storyteller and visual artist. Uh, it deals, in many ways, it recapitulates some of his earlier themes. It's a grand adventure in the tradition of Castle in the Sky and Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke. And uh, Mahito, the hero who's thrust into this fantasy world, really recalls uh, Pazu from uh, Castle in the Sky. But there are incredible visions. There are autobiographical elements. Uh, Mahito's father owns an airplane parts factory during World War II, and he's taken out into the country to live in this uh, estate that belongs to his mother's family, although his mother has died and his father remarried to her sister. And he's uncomfortable in this situation, understandably. Uh, and Miyazaki's father and his family uh, owned an airplane parts factory during the war. And Miyazaki's earliest memories are being carried to safety during the fire bombings, which is why there is often... Uh, condemnations of war and its destruction in his films. But it is an incredible fantasy. It's beautiful and features such curious things as a whole militaristic tribe of carnivorous parakeets. And you're not going to want to sit next to a budgie cage uh, after seeing this <laughs> film. Uh, but it is just uh, embracing and brilliant. And afterwards, reality seems a little bit pallid. The Boy and the Heron from Miyazaki. Peter. Yeah, it's a terrific movie, uh, and I'm, I'm glad he made it, you know, because uh, if he'd made it uh, and was just sort of going through the motions, it, it would be uh, a, a letdown. But, but, you know, he really marshals so many of the things that he's noted for. Uh, the only I, I agree with everything that Charles says. I, I just, a couple of slight quibbles. I, I didn't feel enough of emotional connection to the boy. I thought he was a little bit, uh, you know, kind of off-putting as a, as, a, as a central character given the, the trauma that he goes through. Um, and, and I think, in a way, there's too many good ideas in this film, not just the parakeets, but, you know, he re puts everything into this movie. It, it may be one of these things where, you know, sometimes filmmakers feel like, well, they're not going to make another movie, or they may never make another movie. So I'm just going to put all my ideas into this film, and uh, and let people sort it out. And I think there's a little bit of an overload uh, as far as that goes. And just one very quick point in general, I think that's interesting. There are so many movies this season by directors of a certain age, which is very inspiring, regardless of how good the films are. Ridley Scott, uh, Michael Mann's Ferrari coming up, 
uh, Scorsese, all in their 80s. Uh, Miyazaki, of course. Uh, Fred Wiseman has a wonderful documentary coming up He's soon. still making documentaries. He made a terrific film, A Menu uh, a Plaisir. He's 93. Um, uh, Coppola has a film that he's working on that'll come out next year. He's in his 80s. Uh, you know, unprecedented. We've yeah. never, never had this, this uh, a number of and major films from older directors. The Boy and the Heron rated PG thirteen. It's at multiple AMC theaters and then goes into wide release December eighth. Uh, from Finland, its entry for the Best International Film at the 96th Oscars, Fallen Leaves. The film is directed by Aki Kurismaki. Amy, what did you think? Yeah, here's another uh, great director who said he was retiring back in 2017, and now he's back with a film that won the jury prize at Cannes this year. Uh, Aki Kurosaki, you know, most famous film uh, Finnish director working today. He's this deadpan humanist who has a really big heart, even though none of his characters ever, ever, ever smile. And this is kind of in its true typical form. It's another pretty absorbing, sad romance set among the lonely people of working class Finland. You know, two people falling in love when they don't really feel like compromising anymore and both have a lot of scars. You know, the girl starts the film at a, working at a grocery store, the boy is at a construction site, they make contact at the bar, and then you spend the whole rest of the film kind of rooting for them to get together, to figure it out, even though everything that could go wrong in this movie absolutely goes wrong, as it always does in an Aki Korsmaki film. I mean, both leads are great. Um, the girl has this kind of, like gloomier Janet Gaynor in Sunrise vibe. You know, she's sort of fragile, but she keeps going. She keeps marshalling along. And the guy has this is this kind of this combination of like Humphrey Bogart and Jimmy Stewart. And I feel like it's okay to make allusions to American films because this movie does. They're, they go to dates in an old movie theater and chain smoke outside. And, you know, at this point in his career, like Aki has his touchstones, you know, chain smoking, alcoholism, men who dress like greaser retro Americans. And it kind of makes the film feel cozy because you're just like, oh, it's all the things in him that I really kind of like being around. It's it, And if you are a person who has yet to see an Aki Kurzmaki film, but you love Yorgos Lanthimos, I think you might enjoy this vibe. I would recommend checking it out. Fallen Leaves, Peter. Yeah, I, for me, Kurzmaki is an acquired taste that I haven't quite acquired. Um, well, you've only had how many years to do it? <laughs> well, it, it, that's my point. Uh, um, it, it, it's, I mean, I, I, I'm okay with this movie. Uh, you know, two lonely working class souls. You know, they meet in a karaoke bar. He drinks too much. Uh, you know, they lose their phone numbers. They have mistaken addresses. All of that. It, it at its best, it's sort of. A weird combination of, you know, like Edward Hopper uh, tableau and and Robert Bresson, um, but a little more sort of raw humor underneath all of that. Uh, the but you know the the, the critic uh, Glenn Kenny once said of of uh, Kurismaki that that he puts the dead in deadpan. He meant it as a compliment. I'm, but, That's a great. But I'm line. not so sure. I'm not so sure it's a compliment. Um, fallen, uh, yeah. fallen leaves uh, from uh, Finnish director Aki Kurismaki wrote and directed Fallen Leaves is at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. and unrated. They shot The Piano Player, uh, an animated historical film directed by Javier Mariscal and Fernando Trueba. Charles, what do you think of They Shot the Piano Player? Uh, well, this is really a documentary about uh, the Brazilian piano virtuoso uh, Tenorio Jr. And I assume as a jazz buff as you are, Larry, that you're familiar with his work, which I was not. But the film has two problems. 
One is if they had shot this in live action, it would be so much more effective because you've got interviews with musicians who knew him and are reminiscing about him, and their eyes and their expressions and their gestures would have been much more vivid and much more touching rather than in this kind of low-budget, very, very limited rotoscoping. Similarly, if you're going to present someone as a brilliant performer, a couple of smudgy drawings of fingers that don't even touch the keyboard don't communicate that. Also, when they shot the piano player, unfortunately, they seem to have winged the editor because this movie is like two hours long. It's at least a half an hour too long with people saying, oh, he was a great guy. He wasn't political. He went out to get this. And he was kidnapped by agents of the Argentinian junta and was shot. And it's a tragic story of a very talented artist but it would have been so much easier to make a better film about him. They shot the piano player animated feature rated PG-13. It's at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. starting this Friday. Uh, Peter, a quick thought on Smoke Sauna Sisterhood, uh, a documentary from Estonia. Uh, this is a very abstract movie about uh, women in Estonia who are in a uh, sauna smokehouse and talk about all their innermost secrets and lives. They go out and, uh, you know, hit each other with birch branches and uh, break holes in the ice and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, I don't think that it really uh, accomplishes what it tries to do because it's so arty. You see all bits and pieces of bodies and shadows and you hardly ever uh, feel like you're seeing the women themselves in this smokehouse. Uh, also, all of the innermost secrets that they talk about, uh, uh, when it r- relates to the men in their lives, either they don't speak about them at all or d- very disparagingly. So, I mean, there's a certain slant to this film that I think is is, is a bit suspect. Uh, but there's one great monologue, quote-unquote, in the film where a woman describes um, having been raped, which is just absolutely harrowing, and she takes you step-by-step step through what happened. So it's it's worth seeing, but I think it's way over arty. Smokes on a Sisterhood is Estonia's entry for Best International Feature at the 96th Oscars. Uh, Anna Hintz is the director of the film at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. Coming up on Film Week, we talk about the new book, The Golden Screen, the movies that made Asian America. It's Film Week on L.A.ist, 89.3. Be back in just 90 seconds. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. 